At some point in these wild teenage years, you began to become passionate about certain kinds of rock music <laughs> and began to go out and everything. Among other things, you know, no, no question you were, you were seriously obsessed with Elton John. Those glasses, <laughs> that picture in the book, those were the ones you wore to school, uh -huh. right? I had them for a long time until they, they didn't survive a summer in the Phoenix garage, but yeah, uh, they were good. Uh, so somehow you met, met Patricia and she was going to shows with you, right? Yes, I met Patricia outside of uh, CBS. We had gone, I don't know, I'm not sure if that's the first time I met her, but that's, a, that's my first memory was that uh, Elton John was going to be on the Cher show. So a group of us ditched school and uh, she was there too. We had we had some mutual friends, and we were waiting outside for uh, to, to figure out a way to get into the show because <laughs> essentially we'd just show up places and try and like you know work out how to get in later. But when we oh right, you were trying to get into the actual taping yeah. of the share yeah, show. We were trying to get into the shaping the shaping the taping of the share show, <laughs> which we did not manage to do. But we did manage to have a brief conversation with somebody who was driving up in the in a limousine who just happened to be Michael Jackson. Oh, there you yeah, go. So that was pretty thrilling. But we weren't there for. He was a still in his teens then. He must have been. Yeah, he was our age. Like I actually know somebody who went to school with him. Boy, I never, I didn't know he ever went to school. He did. He went to school. He went with my, um, my the person who, uh, Tiffany Kennedy, who was in castration squad with me, went to school with him. And she used to tell me that um, he used to practice his dance moves during recess, which is kind of cute. Ah, well, at least he knew there was something worth practicing. Yeah. And, you know, some people call him the best raw pure dancer since Fred Astaire. He's a great dancer, definitely. I, I think I agree with that. I think he's a great dancer, and I really like his music. And another thing you actually had access to that people where I grew up had no chance at whatsoever. You know, in, the, in Colorado, it was mainly like country rock, jazz, fusion, pop stuff, an occasional big arena rock band like A Deep Purple, or yeah. eventually Black Sabbath finally came through among others, but otherwise there was nothing even remotely resembling venues for interesting bands that weren't trying to be the next Eagles or the next Dan Fogelberg or whatever, Boulder Zone, he didn't come from there. <laughs> anyway, neither did Firefall, but uh, you see what I'm saying? Well, you actually had access and either fake IDs or you didn't need them to go to something that actually got national news coverage called Rodney's English Disco. Yes, we we did. We got to go there. and uh, But but let me back up for a second and say that I also got okay. to go to the American Music Awards by saying that I was, uh, that I wrote for my high school newspaper, which I did. <laughs> they gave me passes to the first American Music Award. I, I thought wow. that was pretty impressive. So... Did anybody you liked win anything? No, but I I do remember that um, that Elton and Bernie were there, so I was like ah, in the presence of and and. But you didn't try to interview. And uh, I remember like stealing um, 
Well, I don't think it was the same night, actually. It was afterwards. I'll tell you about stealing memorabilia <laughs> another time. Uh-huh. But but right, yes, right, right. Rodney's English Disco. Unfortunately, I because I was still in school, um, I used to have to go to these things really early. So I I really, I mean, I feel like I was there, but it was just like a few people in the audience. It was just starting, and then I'd have to leave because I... I had to have my right, parent pick me right. up. So you didn't see the stuff, the dolls. I didn't see. No, I didn't hang Indian out with the Stooges cool kids or, or anything. No, I did go because I heard Zora about it. But... You knew enough to go to Patty Smith. I did, and Roxy, she 1976. was amazing. She was so good. Yeah. She. I've seen her within the past four to six weeks. She's still so good. Yeah. I think it might be the best show of hers I ever saw because she was a lot of spoken word, a lot of empowerment talk because people are so depressed for good reason now. She was all about working with that and just amazing, amazing, almost a shaman. I, I know. See, you you had the right idea when you ran, ran for mayor. I wish Patty would run for president or something. You know, wouldn't that huh. be awesome? Well, if you ever cross paths, you should tell her yeah. that. She'd probably say, no, not quite my thing. I'd rather concentrate on my art or my writing, whatever. Yeah. You know, you'll notice I didn't keep running for mayor time after time after time after but time. But you know what? The time you did was so memorable that that was good. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Pelosi's district and she does not represent me. That's for <laughs> goddamn sure. She's big city Democrat machine politician to the hilt. And I've pondered running against her every once in a while. But then I realized to do that properly, I would have to give up everything else I do and really do go knock on all them doors and, uh, you know, talk to Barry Hermanson, who's run as a green against Pelosi repeatedly, because I would run as a green, but I'd run much more of a Biafra for mayor type campaign yeah. and uh, whatnot. But no, I mean, uh, it was a good stunt. I had no idea what I was getting into when I did it. And uh, and I have, I have no fun. I mean, Tony Kinman of the Dills accused me of using it as all as a big publicity stunt, growl, snarl, that evil Biafra. Really? But, um, you know, maybe that was Dirksen's idea. But, you know, he just told me, don't give up on this. You have no idea what you're about to cost. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, I, there, there were gadfly candidates in Boulder, for usually for city council and stuff. John Davenport and his picture in the paper with his pirate suit and some of his teeth blacked out and <laughs> saying he's going to run for, he, he's going to ban all cars from the city, which I took that from him as like opening salvo. But then... Where would people like Ruben Salazar and so many others be today if my next thing that just popped into my head when I was writing my platform down on a napkin with a felt tip pen while Pierre Ubu were playing five feet away and stuff was um, make police a little, police officer elected. I know. I, I know Every that. Every four years you vote whether to keep that cop or not. And, you know, you might get yahoos in there every once in a while, but people with criminology degrees and whatnot and people who have made an honest reputation for themselves because, of course, they'd have to live in the districts where they patrol and not live in Nevada or Simi Valley and just look at everybody they're policing as the enemy. Right. I love that. I, I think it's love a really, that really about good you. idea. I love that that particular one. I, I was talking about you at the Punk Rock Museum, and that's I'm like, okay, some <laughs> of these are funny, but some of them are just like 
fucking genius. I mean, like having like communities vote for who police them is, it seems like it makes so much sense. Why haven't we done that? Like who's going to enforce. My candidacy was a prank, but it was also, there was some good ideas that came out of that too. And I think it also like, you know, it forced people to be on their toes. Like, look, this guy's challenging us and he's not even taking it seriously. It's like, we better like, Come up with some substance. Yeah, the corporate media, all only one they liked was um, that I would make businessmen wear clown suits between the hours of nine and five. I love that one too. Though. But there was a method behind that. Mayor Diane Frankenfeinswine, <laughs> the Wicked Witch of the Bay, was running for her first actual term. And she said she was going to clean up Market Street. We can't let San Francisco become Kook City and all that. To which point <laughs> oh a city a board of supervisors candidate named Dennis Perone said, we are the Kooks. And that's why I'm running. But I thought, yeah, okay, I'll clean up Market Street. But I'm going to clean up not the Tenderloin area that, you know, even the mayor now who hates poor people just rants and raves and six cops on. London Breed, don't ever let her get statewide office. She is totally unqualified and in over her head just as mayor. But anyway, so Feinstein, I'm going to clean up the Tenderloin. I was like, no, no, no. Clean. When she says clean up Market Street, she meant the Tenderloin. But then the other end of Market Street was the headquarters at the time of Bank of America, Chevron, Bechtel Construction, and all the others. That's what needs cleaning up. (laughs) Therefore, they must wear clown suits between the hours of nine and five, even if they're still working at Bechtel and their name is George Schultz or Casper Weinberger (laughs) or whatever. They all got to wear clown suits. That's good. That's good. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you meet very interesting people when you run for office. The other fringe is there, too. There was a woman with a permanent scowl on her face, Patricia Dolbeer, who was a Lyndon LaRouche follower. And the opening thing at her platform was, Diane Feinstein is a drug pusher. I thought, wow, if only. <laughs> That's like calling Obama a socialist or Biden even, if only. But... Uh, no, she, she, <laughs> you know, I had to be on a TV thing with her because they wanted all the fringe people on at once. Therefore, it was me and <laughs> Dole Beer and one other one. But anyway, back to Rodney's and your awakening. You're going out to shows. You're familiar. I, I, oh, I wrote Roxy. That, that, was I writing that down because of Roxy music? No, because I saw Must Patty say. Smith at the Roxy, maybe. Yeah. Right. That might have been yeah. it, too. But at Santa Monica Civic, you were seeing somebody and you got front row tickets. Who was that? Oh, at the Santa Monica, it wasn't, we actually got front row tickets at the LA Forum. That was Ah. Queen. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was Queen. Yes. And uh, what happened at the Queen show? You know, I had Elton John, who I was in love with, and Patricia was in love with Freddie Mercury. So we started. You know, waited up all night at our local ticket scalper, and we got front row center tickets at the LA Forum. And uh, Patricia was all dressed up. She looked like a beautiful, like just beautiful vampire. You know that look she has. It's kind of, she always, Mm -hmm. she was an early, like, you know, vampire y looking woman, Uh, but always gorgeous. And Freddie Mercury started to sing a ballad and he came out and he poured a glass of wine and he looked over at 
you know, Patricia and I both thought he was handing the glass of wine to her because he had made eye contact with her. But, you know, someone's on stage, the woman right next to her apparently thought that he was handing it to her. So both women got up, they grabbed the glass and Patricia had it in her hand and the other woman snatched it out and it cut off the top, the, the glass broke and cut off the top of her finger, um, her bass playing finger. And uh, which finger, the index finger or the next? Uh, one? I think it was the index finger. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it was the index finger. And um, so she like, I didn't know what was going on. She started screaming like, I, I, find my finger, find my finger. And I'm looking on the ground, but it's all dark. Right. Freddie's singing a song. Everybody's paying attention there. I like flag down a security guy comes over and starts you know, shining a flashlight down on the ground and Patricia's like about to pass out. They take her out up to the, um, you know, to take her to the medic. And, um, and she's yelling at me, go back and find my finger because they can sew it back on. So I went back like, you know, (laughs) Freddie's still singing and I'm looking through the, you know, on the ground trying to find a piece of flesh. Of course I didn't find it. But uh, Patricia and I ride off to the hospital in an ambulance and uh, she gets, she, she eventually learned to play bass without the top part of her, of her finger. But with a pick or was she a no, finger? No, no, no. It was, it was the one that holds down the, the strings. So it was that, you know, oh, it was okay. her left hand. So left index yeah, finger, left index finger. So she has like, I have pictures of her with this giant, like bandaged finger. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that, you know, what's funny is that like the first thing that Patricia said, it's like, call them up and see if we can get free tickets for the next show. <laughs> it's like, so I called and I'm like, hey, you know what? My fin- my friend lost her finger at the last show. Can we get tickets for? So we got, we got, t- they were lucky they didn't get oh. sued. We were too young, yeah, too young exactly. and stupid to know we could have had dinner with Freddie Mercury had we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What was your first underground punk show? I think uh, my first like local punk show was the Orpheum Theater where um, I saw the Germs who doing their first show, the Zeros and the Weirdos. And the reason that I was there was because I was there to see Nikki Beat, who by that time he was my boyfriend and he had just joined the Weirdos and he was telling me about them. Um, and he to- like, I hadn't actually seen him play with them, but he told me, that uh, they had made him cut his hair and Nicky Beat had like these golden locks. He looked like Peter Frampton in Frampton Comes Alive, right? right? And she's right. like, they made me cut my hair. And I, I was like, what? Yeah, I've seen the picture. It isn't quite a mullet. But if I ever run into him again, he's never going to live that down. <laughs> Did you meet at Rodney's or somewhere no, else? No, we met, um, oh, this we, we have to go back several steps. Like I met him through... Uh, okay, it all ties back to a cattle call that um, that Kim Fowley had after he lost the Runaways. He was trying to form another band, and I had met uh, Rodney Bigenheimer and, and told him I was forming an all-girl band. And he said, "Well, give me your number, and I'll, you know, if I can help, I will." So I gave him my number, and he called, and and some man called my house. I was living at home by this time. 
And one morning, my mother knocked on the door and she's like, there's a man on the phone. And it was, I thought it was Rodney, but it was actually Kim Fowley. And then he told us he's having auditions. Uh, Patricia and I and our friend Margo went, we, we all went together. We auditioned and none of us were good enough. Um, you know, like he was, he just like would put us in different configurations and then throw the rejects out. Uh, I was immediately rejected. But what the really cool thing that happened is that like on the loading dock where, where we were being asked to leave, all the girls were still hanging out and making friends and like, you know, exchanging numbers. And we met our drummer that way. And our drummer had a, a brother, an older brother who was like deep into glam and he was a guitarist and he's a little bit older than us and said, I'm going to be, you. if you get my sister in the band, in your band, I'm, I'll manage you guys. I'm like, okay. <laughs> we thought it was a good deal. Anyway, that manager introduced me to Jeffrey Ivisovich, who would become Nikki Beat and join the Weirdos. And that's how I ended right. up with my first show. And this was... Um... This was 76 no, or 77? this was 77. This was April 77. So up till then, uh-huh. like my punk, my punk uh, associations were all, I guess, cons- you know, well, the bands that were considered like proto-punk, right? Like I was into like Patti Smith, New York Dolls, although I never saw the, the Dolls live. Um, I, I did see the Tubes. I remember that. Uh, I was into Mata the Hoople. Um, those types of things. Oh, germs, weirdos, other people forming other bands and things. And um, you, uh, let's see, where do I start with it? You know, the, the, the key point was just kind of somewhat similar when I was a little bit later, third generation in San Francisco, everybody knew each yeah. other after a while. And, if, you know, in 77, thought punk was the big of, beginning of something much bigger than it ever actually became. Even with Green Day, you know, I, I thought it was going to be the as big as Beatlemania, and these are all the new bands all over the place. And you know, maybe I can at least set, tell my grandchildren I I saw the Dills before they played stadiums. Maybe get one little record out of my own, so I was part of it. And then when I made it back to San Francisco for good in early '78, um, the the boom had been lowered, and the major labels made it clear we are not going to sign punk bands. And the Dickies were the last ones who got signed. I think there was a relative at A&M of Leonard or one of the others who got him in. No more punk till Husker Du almost a decade later. Well, you know what? But um, Also, one of the things that, that, that we have to mention is that no more punk as we defined it, right? There were people that now are, that are considered punk that we probably just said, oh, well, they're new wave or power pop. It's something oh, exactly. else. Those bands were getting exactly. signed. And people were calling them punk, but they weren't really punk. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of them helped run the punk right. museum. Blondie is in the punk <laughs> right. museum. I know. I was, I was saying that. Were... Like, we never considered Blondie really punk. I mean, but, I mean, not. To, I, don't, I don't hate on Blondie, but it was just like, there was like completely yeah. different vibe as to what was punk. I mean, very, very early on, punk and new wave were interchangeable terms. Uh by and, some, by um, some. I think some of yeah. us, like those of us who were involved and making like more aggressive music, I think, and felt like, oh, our bands can't play that club because we're too too rowdy or something. You know, we felt right, like there is right. a differentiation. Like I I can't be compared yeah. to 
you know, the motels or some of the local bands that had like exactly. singers that were standing yeah. around and singing beautiful, like. Yeah, they were barely even considered new wave, you know, FM rock with Dayglow colors instead of another Eagles album or something. Yeah, I mean, you it, know, it, it's, you know, it was a diff, it was, it was new, but it wasn't, it, I still don't think it was punk, you know, and, and it's funny because well, no. that you bring this up because I, I just did an interview for this, this, uh, the story on the punk wars in Chinatown uh, where like Madame Wong's was booking all these new wave bands and Hong Kong cafe was booking all the punk bands. Right. Did you ever play Hong Kong cafe? Yeah. Once we did with, with verses. Oh, yeah. That, that was yeah. cool. Yeah. It was, it, it wasn't well attended, but uh, interesting people were there, including Johnny legend who introduced himself oh. to me and then said, wow, um, you want to come back down here and open for Fred Blassie? <laughs> oh, really? I think he was just happy that he that I knew who Fred was, but I didn't hear I didn't hear from him about that one. But uh, I did not realize that Madame Wong's had a thing against punk because I always heard other punk bands played there too. Yeah, I think she was more partial to bands that she thought were a little more mm, sedate. You know, like a, that that wouldn't well, didn't oh, wow. have audiences that would like wreck the furniture, and we weren't known as one of those. You know, like we were known as. But I think it was Madame Wong's, and not the Hong Kong, where a group of really young kids with a really fast tempo band came out on the bus from D.C. calling themselves the Teen Idols, I D L E S. Uh-huh. And okay. they had to borrow equipment at Madame Wong's from a band that were not really punk, but kept getting stuck with punks, much to their chagrin, called uh, Puke Spittin' Guts. That doesn't sound like a Madame Wong's band. Counted. One of their songs was, Who Needs a Queer Cut? We Don't Need a Queer Cut! And other fun mm. things. Their singer called himself Captain Worm and had long hair and a beard, but a p- toilet plunger and his crotch sticking down. And, you know, that, that was the only place they could get booked. They put out an album called Eat Hot Lead as well, which must be heard to be believed. The Teen Idols borrowed their equipment except for the instruments for that show and blew one of their amps and wound up hiding under cars and moving and moving and moving and moving. And they described them puke spit and guts as bikers to me, which I'm not sure they actually were, but they were scared half to death of those guys. And those guys wanted to completely kick their ass. And they didn't know what kind of music was about to come out of their equipment either. And the Teen Idols, well, two of them, the singer and the drummer, were Ian Mackay and Jeff uh-huh. Nelson, who then morphed into Minor yeah. Threat. And they had a fifth guy with a mohawk named Henry, who was the quote-unquote roadie at the time, and then started his own D super fast DC hardcore band called SOA, State of Alert, yeah. before Black Flag plucked him and put him in the van and the rest is history. It was those guys who did that and hiding in all the cars to escape, maybe even the bouncers, too. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Another one that the name rang a bell where I didn't know about this name before you knew a girl you knew early on in the punk scene called herself Dottie Danger. Oh, yeah. Dottie Danger. Yes. She's still my friend. And wasn't she the original drummer for the Germs? She was the original drummer for the Germs, but she didn't 
get to play the first show because she got mono and had to stay home. Oh. And so Donna Rhea was the, the first right. drummer. <laughs> yeah, Daddy Danger later changed her? her name to Belinda Carlisle. Although she sometimes went by Kitty Carlisle. Name, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that that's one of my favorite pieces of trivia to stump people with is who was the original drummer of the Germans. <laughs> and they never guess it was her. And you're still friends with her. That's cool. Yeah. And so, um, which means she doesn't shy away from that, does no, she? No, she doesn't. Does she? And I, I had been out of touch with her. Um, and when I moved to Mexico, she wrote to me, um, I think it was on Instagram and, you know, said, let's get together. And I, I was kind of shocked. I was like, wait, you remember me? <laughs> it's like, I really thought that I was like, you know, I mean, she's a huge star. Like every time I go to Goodwill, they're playing like any parking lot, any market or out here in Arizona, they're either playing the Go-Go's or Belinda's, you know, solo things. Solo but stuff. She's on heavy yeah. rotation. And 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 the woman you mentioned going to shows with, um, along with Patricia named Margot, that was Margot Gogo. No, that was that was another Different friend Margo. from high school, and I call her Marlene in the book. I fell out of touch with her, okay. and I, you know, I changed the names of like a few people. I wasn't sure how like if they wanted to be associated with the book or anything, and I, especially when like if things were at all if I was going to say anything that was weird, I, I didn't want to like run the risk of either them getting mad at me or, or having any problems. Well, so the I other just way changed. to do that is to ask them ahead of time. If but I'm out, I, I haven't that. talked to her in like, Oh, I, I don't even know where she is. I haven't talked to her in years. Like some right, people just, right. you know, really like I haven't seen them since the 70s. Of course. Of course. And another one back then, you in passing, you mentioned Pearl Harbor yeah. as being part of that. Was that that Pearl Harbor who was the San Francisco Pearl no, Harbor? No, this oh. was the L.A. Pearl Harbor. So there's two. Okay. There, I know I know the Pearl Harbor in San Francisco was a singer, and she still is. Um, and she's yeah. Pearl Harbor and the explosions. But this was an, our L.A. Pearl Harbor. And... Uh, just, they just happen to have the same name around the same time, but in different cities. But she, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a few of those. Uh, there's, there's some other names. So you've got multiple people all over the world with that name. Yeah, too. sure. But not, but not mention all the people born. You're in, the only one. Yeah, they never tried to sue me. That's great. They sued, General Foods sued Green Jello over the name, and they changed it to Green Jelly. Oh, Maybe I wow. just never put the hyphen in. That's great. I mean, Jello Biafra was picked out of a notebook at random that me and my friend John Greenway back in Boulder were making up names for bands, names for people in bands, names for songs. I get to San Francisco. We're about to play. Oh, God, I need a name. Um, No no teacher except for a couple of them could ever pronounce my real last name right anyway. I'm sick of that name. And so I used Occupant. You know, then maybe somebody would send me a letter. But, hey, resident, (laughs) how you doing? So occupant had to go. I look at the list. Smeg of pig vomit. Uh, maybe not. Mucus melanoma. No, not that one either. Bobby bacteria. No, that's not that great. Jello Biafra. That's cool. 
That's kind of surreal. I like that one. And I'll just use Biafra for short because it rolls off the tongue like tomato. Ah, tomato oh, do plenty. Yeah. That was part of that too because the Screamers were my favorite band at the time and stuff. And still the greatest band that never put out a proper oh, record of the I history know, of rock is... music going all the way back. So then at some point you starting to at least tell people or something that the band was going to be the bags. Yeah. Well, we just, uh, after we, we went to that show, the one where I told you I saw the germs and the zeros and the right. weirdos, right. Patricia and I, up until that point, we had been trying to form a, an all-female band with that, that could actually like play. And I think we wanted to be more like, a little more like queen. <laughs> ah, not like the Runaways or Venus and the no, Razor. We didn't want to be like that, but I mean, we we were inspired by them, but we wanted to be like we wanted to be really good. But of course, we didn't have right. the chops to be really good. So, um, so after seeing that show, we're like, let's just do this now. Let's like fuck glam. Let's just go punk. Let's just do it this way. And uh, and Patricia said she had like she had been out with like some of the people who would go on to be in flip, like form flip side magazine. Um, she had, right. they lived in Whittier. They all lived in Whittier. And uh, she said she had been out joyriding with them one afternoon and, you know, they were all bored, um, had nothing else to do, but somebody had a bunch of like folded up market bags in the back of the car. So they decided to just rip up some eyes, nose and mouth and then use them as masks. And they rode around Whittier and they'd pull up by by uh, pedestrians and try and engage them in conversation. And she said they got <laughs> they had so much fun because people would either run away screaming or start laughing or, or ask them what they were up to. And she said, you know, she suggested that we do that. And then, so right. after that, so they weren't yelling insults at pe- at pedestrians with the bags. No, on. they weren't. They weren't. They were actually they trying. Were trying to... They were being friendly, but I think people were like freaked out. Like, you know, are they going to yeah. like rob yeah. us or what? Yelling at pe- yelling at people in, from cars can be quite the art form <laughs> at times. Well, you know, like masked people. I think it might have been a little scary, <laughs> but yeah, there were, me, a couple of my hippie freak friends. I did that once or twice. We used cross country ski leather masks oh my and God. stuff and uh, <laughs> some other things, and went around and went to Longmont, which was a cow town outside of Boulder at that time. It's a bedroom community now. So all them cowboy types, the rednecks and the trucks would be cruising up and down, and we'd be we'd be looking at them, laughing, and had a dead rubber chicken out the window and. Things people do when they're bored before punk gives us direction yeah. and yeah. finds a way out of teenage depression where there's something to live for. <laughs> yes. And I was also astonished to find out that Geza X was in the bag. Yes, he was. Early he, on. Um, we, uh, Patricia and I. We, and Jonah Nini from Wall of Voodoo, yes, too. Um, we decided to just, you know, we were, we were kind of stuck with like trying to form this all girl band. So we just decided to put an ad in the paper. We put an ad in the paper saying we were looking for female musicians. And, uh, and Geza X called and said, please, please give me a chance. I, you know, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I'm always the one who wants to just shut it down. And Patricia was like, no, let's give them a chance. They have a drummer too. And they have some place we can practice. And 
So it, at that point, it was me, Patricia, and uh, our lead guitarist was um, Janet Kuntz, who was somebody who'd gone to school with Patricia. And at that point, too, Patricia was really into like uh, Irish dancing, by the way, just as I just remember being in her room and she had like she had all these like awards for being a great Irish dancer. But I digress. Anyway, what a shame she didn't do that on stage. I, wish. While she was I know like, in the bag and, and she would show me like how she did it. And she'd, like we'd be super straight and stiff on top and just be doing all these like crazy things with her legs it was amazing anyway um <laughs> anyway we we the three of us me and janet and patricia went to uh to see jonanini and and geza x and we started jamming in the place that we had to rehearse was their living room so uh so we rehearsed there and we hit it off we just decided let's let's do it this way and they were up for like wearing bags on their heads so that's how the bags were born including Geza with bloody tampons on his. Yes, I didn't know he was going to do that. <laughs> I was, I was, was it real blood no, or not? I'm sure it was some kind of paint <laughs> or something. I don't, I don't think he dug them out of the trash. I think, he, I think it was an art project. But he did. But the stains on his underwear were real. <laughs> Those were real. I don't uh -huh. know if you've seen the pictures. But uh, if you don't, I'll have to send you a picture because he's wearing like like golden stained crotch underwear. I believe that is visible in the yes. picture in the book. Yes, it was quite disgusting. <laughs> well, that, that was what made punk so much fun back then. It really <laughs> was rebellious. It really did shock the hell out of all the people who were so richly deserving of being annoyed. You know, I cut my hair off when I was UC Santa Cruz blasting the sex pistols into the dorm room and whatnot. Suddenly I felt the same way I did when I was the first guy in sixth grade to have long hair. Suddenly there was this outlaw quality and this new freaky thing that was, uh, you know, it, it was it was quite cool. Yeah, I know. It's, it's funny quite because it's cool. like for people who experience punk now, People know what it is, you know, people know like, oh, they've seen it. They've seen it at Torrid. They've seen it at the mall. They've seen their, you know, kids for generations who are punk. But when we were doing it, people thought like, Ooh, are they in a gang or are they going to like, you know, pull off a heist or like, you know, people were confused. Yeah, the yeah. normies were confused by what the punks were doing. And you could also just walk down oh, yeah. the street. And if you saw somebody that looked weird, you knew like, oh, there's my tribe. <laughs> which is why new wave was not entirely ditched at that point, at least in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. The San Francisco Pearl Harbor, when she went solo and whatnot, that was a more like what you're describing the motels. It was meant for a major yeah. label deal and they got one and all that good stuff. It was pop. Yeah. But, I mean, and I, um, I love pop. I, 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 all the time that I was into like punk, I also like, I, I, I like my ABBA too. So I don't, you know, I'm not saying that I don't right. like pop. I'm saying that I think sometimes, you know, like confuse these two things like new wave and punk. Right. And uh, one is, you know, not necessarily better than the other, but if you know the difference, then you can know like, I like this or I like right. that or this. Well, my attitude about what is now the commercial pop punk thing 
is you know we get a lot of demos of that even sometimes with lawyers or modeling agencies return addresses <laughs> and stuff maybe they'll be the next good charlotte whatever is uh whenever i hear anything because i play them in my car uh-huh. um gotta be hard copies or i ain't gonna listen i'm not gonna be distracted driving with band camp that's for damn sure but Whenever I hear anything that sounds like the Eagles with loud guitars and those whiny, that whiny voice comes in and the dumb girly poo lyrics come in, out of my stereo it goes. So you debuted at The Mask, yeah, right? we did. That was our first show. And you had already been there for other shows. I right? hadn't. No, it was. Uh, oh, okay. But. Who was it? I think it was either Geza or Nikki knew that they had had, I think they'd had like two or three shows there. And, right. uh, right. and so they, uh, Nikki and Geza went down to the basement and they asked, um, they asked Brendan if we could play. And then I think they brought me down so I could meet him. And, uh, and, uh, and that's how it happened. Like basically we just told them about the band, told them we wore bags on our heads and that was enough for Brendan to book us. It's like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, as well, a headliner, part too. That it's like... Even, I never got to go to The Mask. I showed up a little bit later. But the your description of The Mask, it certainly was about 10 floors below the already deliberately divey, grungy, grimy CBGBs. This was something all... I don't think I know of any other venue yeah. that was like this. I know this. people so, talk about CBGBs like, oh, their bathrooms were so horrible. It's like, your bathrooms were clean. You had toy, you had stalls, you know, like, I mean, we had stalls, <laughs> but they had no doors and the bathrooms were broken. And you're just like, they're horrible. Walk us through a visual description of the first time you went there. Well, it was you had to go downstairs into a dark into place. Into a basement. Just to get in, it's right? cavernous. And at the time, I don't think there was, I mean, there might have been some graffiti, but it wasn't like, you know, the all the graffiti that's there now. So it was just concrete walls. Um, it, I think it was a bomb shelter at some point. So it had like really thick walls. Um, the bathrooms. I heard were the trench. The the trench that you had to get into to find the stairs was <laughs> what Cecil B. DeMille shot Moses parting the Red Sea in. And it was an old movie thing. Well, there was, there was a separate, there was a front, uh, front door exit. I mean, entrance, there was a front door and you could enter through there. And then you had like all the movie posters and stuff. Did you ever go that way? No, I never, I've never been there at all. Oh, really? I had no idea that space still existed. I thought it had been long demolished. It's it's World of Wonder now. They actually like, <laughs> you know, shoot stuff for RuPaul's Drag Race and stuff. So I feel like the, like, what a proud heritage. <laughs> like it's Yeah, really there cool. you go. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was access um, through a side door that was on Cherokee. Um, but... None of us have ever were allowed to use it because I think it was just for certain people to use that maybe worked in the above the building, um, and that was that had like old movie posters and stuff, and they had like one of those old gated elevators. Uh, but we went down through an alley. You go through the alley. There's a little side door, and then you go down the stairs, and there's just concrete everywhere. Um, and then 
to the left was Brendan's office, which was just a little, you know, a tiny room, like the size of a, a size of a bathroom where he had a little, I think he had a little cot or something. And then he had like all his papers. It was, it was an office. Uh, I mean, that was another thing that I never knew before was Brendan actually lived, yeah, Brendan there. lived there. Yeah. And uh, in the, in the center, there were kind of like these toilets that I don't think there was like a, you know, I don't think they were gendered. I think it was just, here's the toilets. And mostly they were broken. I think there are pictures of them here and there where people are like just, you know, hanging on the toilets. Right. But uh, they were always, you know, fully ringed with wear. Let me put it that way. They were, you know, <laughs> the rings of, of uh, visitors past. More rings <laughs> than Saturn on those toilets, uh, but wow! But and then and then the stage. It was one of those stages that was quite the, low. That stage was there a was foot some of, kind foot of a PA off the ground. There. I think that stage was probably like you know those uh, what are those pallets that like it was like it moved around a lot when you were on there, um, but yeah, there was a small stage and it was about a foot off the ground. There were there was equipment set up for a show um no monitors or anything like that but then uh further on the right side of the stage if you're facing it there were i think three rehearsal rooms um and some of the bands rehearsed oh. there as well but that's it there were other little all the rooms. bands there were other little like you know, right, like, right. it was kind of like a little cavern that you could go explore. And there was a back door and a back staircase that I believe led to um, either Hollywood Boulevard or directly into the Pussycat Theater. I'm not sure because the Pussycat Theater was on <laughs> Cherokee and we were under it. So the, the equipment you say was on stage. Are you talking about just a PA and a little board or, or are you talking about amps and cabinets and a drum set and the bands all used the same no, equipment. we took our stuff i only remember this right. because patricia had a road amp i mean it was like this big block super heavy and she and i always carried it like you know everybody else carried <laughs> their own equipment i helped her carry that that gigantic road <laughs> amp and and gay gay is gaza goes in there let me stop at the mask i'll be right back he runs in Runs back to the car. I just got us a show. Yeah, yeah. And how long from when suddenly you had a show and not quite a solidified lineup did you actually uh, play? I think it was like a week. I think we had a week to uh, to to get ready. We had, I'm not sure we had seven or eight songs, but I know that we played one of the songs twice because we didn't have enough songs. And uh, the whole experience that whole first show is kind of a blur to me except that like i remember bits and pieces of it like it's you know like vignette it's like there's a, the part where i i'm on stage and i'm inside the bag and i'm look, trying to look out through these holes but the bag you know it sways on your head so the holes are going like this right <laughs> so it makes this really weird experience and then i'm you know, I'm trying to sing, but I can't hear what I'm singing and I'm trying to dance and everything's kind of wobbling a little bit. And then there's like Bobby Pin in the audience and he like right before I went on stage, he's like, 
you know what? The band should wear the bags, but you have to connect with the audience. You should not be wearing a bag over your head. I'm going to tear that bag off of you. And I'm like, no, you're not. I'm going to wear it. So the whole time he's like clawing at my bag, trying to rip it off. And eventually he <laughs> rips a little corner of the bag out. So in a way he did me a favor because I could like look out the piece of bag that's hanging off. So I sang that way. Most of the, most of the set that way. And then like, oh, maybe three or four songs in, you know what it's like on stage, right? It's, you start sweating. Then the paper starts sticking to my face because <laughs> I'm sweating and I'm like, you know, a paper mache project all of a sudden. So it was crazy. Like the whole thing is a blur. Well, it sounds like the audience went wild immediately. Maybe it was your animal sexual magnetism <laughs> with a bag on your head. I know, I know. It's, it's, I'm irresistible it with a bag like people on my are trying head. To, it sounds like people are trying to tear the bag off your head at every single show before you got rid of the bag. <laughs> it was it was Bobby Pin, who later changed his name to Darby. I don't know what at what point he changed his name to Darby, but he was he became cool when he changed his name to Darby, and then he stopped like right. trying to tear things off, but. When he was Bobby, yeah. he was just a prankster. Right. He's Bobby Pin on that original Germ single called Forming. Yeah. yeah. With Donna Rhea on it, too, and stuff. He's Bobby Pin on that. Yeah. One. I mean, I, I, I have very fond memories of Bobby Pin. We were really good friends. <laughs> and then, yeah. um, you know, yeah. he, he went through some changes. Right. Right. Well, talk a little bit about the Bobby you knew. The Bobby I knew was a really, like, um, a really sweet guy that would just, like, he was a fan. He was, like, us, you know, like, somebody who would go and stalk bands and wait and find out, like, you know, where they're playing, where they're staying, where they shop, you know, to try and meet the the bands. Like, he was also a big Queen fan. So I think they were Uh also trying to, like, you know, get to, to meet him. To meet Freddie, he was also I. I was taking a bunch of philosophy classes at the junior college level at that time, and uh, Bobby was really into philosophy. So we talk a little bit about philosophy, but in the mean, but also he would just make jokes. You know, he would just like he would tell all these goofy jokes. Like if he heard something during the day, like whether it's a knock knock joke or you know like my. The one I remember most because, like, he said it a bunch of times was, do you know about the guy? Did you hear about the guy that got his right side cut off? Did you, Jello? And, no. He's lucky to have what's left. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, those, that, that tells you a lot about his personality, right? The fact that he would go around telling that joke. And then he would tell the other one, did you hear about the guy who, uh, who got his left side cut off? No. He's all right now. Uh, <laughs> so jokes even grandparents would love. I know, but, but that that was Bobby Pin, right? Like in a nutshell, right. somebody who like told goofy jokes, who would talk, could talk to you about philosophy or like what his you know what he was going to have for lunch or like what he was going to wear at the next show or um, you know it's just easy easy going or what like who who he wanted to meet. Like which artists were important to him? Yeah, I mean, I never, I never met Bobby Pin. I met Darby Crash uh, much later, of course, 
And um, yeah, I did not, the sense of humor you're talking about, I don't remember ever seeing any of that. Yeah. And as you finally said in your book, the later Barb Darby crash, he didn't necessarily want fans. He wanted followers. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the germ burns would stick a cigarette in your wrist and then you're finally cool with them and stuff like yeah. that. I, I think he was really trying to cultivate, you know, the, a sort of a cult. He was like, he, right. his, um, like one of the things that he would do was like ask you to give him stuff like. But it was just like the practice of like actually, it wasn't necessarily something valuable. It was just something that maybe you were wearing or you had. And just the act of giving it to him was a sort of like allegiance to him, right? So like he would go around uh, and ask people for things that not because he needed them, but because he wanted them to kind of pledge allegiance to him. Um, and then yeah. I, I would like often like, you know, I was kind of the opposite of that. I was kind of like very available to like, I always considered the people that were in the audience, my peers, because most of the time they were my peers. Like there were people that were also in bands or doing something creative. So I would always just talk to them like a normal person. And, and I remember like Darby would say like, they don't want that from you. They want like somebody they can look up to. You're too accessible. Like he'd try and give me tips uh, which oh my so i don't think he did that with me he liked me but uh he liked the band obviously because we were another one of the wild ones where crazy things went on on the on and off the on the stage in the audience you know you know enough yeah. of that you've seen yeah. us enough but um yeah it's sort of like thinking back and then eventually he dies and you attribute it to suicide in your book, which not everybody believes there was an accidental overdose or something. And the, the, the story, you've probably heard this too from Geza, where he told me that he got a call from Darby's then lover. Um, by then he was either bisexual or had male lovers named Rob Henley. Yeah. And, he, and then the, the voice changed. No, no, it's not Rob. It's Darby. It's Darby. It's Darby. And, you know, I didn't want to die. I didn't kill myself. I was trying to get back in my body and I couldn't do it. And I could see my body below me up in the room and I just couldn't get back. Have you heard that story? I haven't, but it's, it's really sad. It's really, it's yeah. like, I, I just feel like he. Because he was kind of. I just feel like he had everything, you know, like he, like, like there's so much he could have done. And I wish he like. Yeah. I wish he had so much potential and so many. Well, the, the other part that I think killed him in part was that he could not check Darby Crash at the door Yeah. when he went home yeah. and just be Jean-Paul for a while and do other things and then go back to Darby. Yeah. I mean, he, can't, he had to be Darby, the public leader and baddest of the bad and everything all the time. And I've seen that damn near kill other people we both know too, but didn't, thankfully. You know, you do, if, you're, if you're writing your biography in your head as you go, it's going to be a way less interesting biography. <laughs> you know, I, I, that's, it's funny because um, I think that's why you have to appreciate like that whole like straight edge movement that like came up afterwards because... It, it did so much good to, for so many people that needed an alternative, you know, like they needed another way, another like idea of what is cool. 
Um, like I know I was hanging around a lot of people that were doing heroin, that were addicted to heroin. And, um, yeah. you know, it was very tempting to just like let, let the drug do all the, all the work, you know? And I just I felt like I've worked too fucking hard to get, you know, to survive yeah. all yeah. the bullshit in my life. I'm not going to actually let this take me down. So I think I just yeah, never, there was a, there was a, the, the, the peer stuff with me too. Like among people get kind of giving me shit. Cause I wasn't doing dope and rarely even did speed. Cause I realized fairly early on, I just couldn't handle it and keep up with those guys. You know, people who did fall into that and will shatter Don vinyl. And then later Michael Belfer, who I never thought would fall into that. They're all dead. And I, I could tell when Michael was starting to at least do speed because he started, the eyes got a little closing. It was a little just more, little grumpier and a little, my God, these guys are aging dramatically before my very eyes. One more reason not to do this. I've tried them all. I think it's worth at least experiencing it, even if you need a supervised setting. Never, No crack. Never did that one. I doubt, I doubt I will now anyway. Heroin only once, and I had such a horrible experience, I never want to do it again. <laughs> but I'm glad I kind of felt it. I mean, anybody who's in charge of running our goddamn war on drugs has no business being in that position unless they've tried all the drugs <laughs> and understand why they appeal to people. Maybe not no get comment. down on weeds. No and... comment. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm also on a crusade to bring back cheapo skunk weed. Like me and my friends smoked when we were potheads. It was cheap. Yeah. It wasn't like the Colombian or the Thai or all the fancy stuff they have now, but it got a, it got us loaded, but it was really cheap. You got cheap skunk weed. There's a lot of kids who want to experiment with getting high who are going to go there first instead of to meth or alcohol or worse yet oxycontin yeah. or something you know you need you need the skunk weed need to be available that could be and, your next uh your ne if you run again <laughs> well you know that would that would undoubtedly be part of it that's one of my many youtube rants called what would jello do there's a whole bring back skunk weed <laughs> one anyway the bags come off mm -hmm. And members change. Yeah. And not so many women and no more Geza, no Joe Nanini, but two guitar players, not just one. And it's Rob Ritter and Craig Lee. Well, even before that, even before Rob Ritter, we had this guy named Johnny Nation. And um, and we had uh, another drummer named Oddly, not the not the girl Ricky Sticks, but we had an, another drummer who was also known as Ricky Sticks, um, and we played with them for a little bit. But there was some kleptomania going on that we had to nip in the bud, and then <laughs> Craig Lee got involved, and then Craig, then we got Craig Lee and Rob Ritter, and Terry Graham had. Um, had just recently gotten into, like, I think I met him at the Canterbury and he was new in town, but he had these really cool red bondage pants that were all he had to recommend him, right? <laughs> He's like, it's like, uh, yeah, I think I can play drums. I'm going to take drum lessons with Nikki Beat. And I'm like, okay. At the time, Nikki was working as a drum teacher. So I'm like, maybe you can be our right, new drummer. Right. So. Okay, but one thing we do have to get to, 
the early days, the perfect segue, not just the mask is indescribably what it is and stuff. You want an even bigger and more insane utter zoo that helped incubate the LA, the early LA punk scene, the Canterbury Apartments. The Canterbury. I've never heard of anything like that anywhere else ever that was that nuts. Yeah, it was. It really was nuts, especially because uh, I think, you know, there was no kind of I think the, the landlord just wanted to fill up the the building. And uh, so basically they didn't ask for anything like you just, you know, you you didn't need any documents or anything to prove that you could afford to live there. So anybody got in. So all the punks lived there a lot, like not all of them, but like there were at least three or four apartments on every floor. And there was four floors where there were punks living. And sometimes it was like one or two people. Sometimes it was three or four. Then, you know, we had in our apartment uh, when I lived with Shannon it was me and Shannon and Sheila, and uh, it was like, okay, one of us sleeps on the couch, the other two might sleep on the bed, somebody might sleep on the floor, whatever worked out that <laughs> night. But um, but it, but every every floor was like that, and then we just kind of took over it. Like I remember people like setting up a projection, um, like a projector. I think it was on the roof, and they would just um, project onto the side of the building, like pornographic movies and stuff and like for everybody <laughs> to see which is kind of fucked up because there were kids that lived there too was the building pink stucco i think it was white when we were there okay yeah but also false false illusion on my part yeah but there's that mo- there's that movie that came out about the factory record scene uh-huh. in uh manchester it's titled 24 hour party people it seems like the Canterbury really was the 24-hour party piece. It was. There was there was always somebody awake and, you know, doing something. Like, I don't really remember sleeping much when I was there. And if I did, it was definitely during the day. But it was always <laughs> happening at, like, late into the early morning hours. Like, I remember, um, I mean, it, it was really fun for a while, like, different people had parties, different people did collaborations. We eventually got the, the, um, the manager of the apartment building to allow us to convert parts of the basement into a rehearsal studio for bands to practice. And, uh, I mean, it was sweet until somebody wanted to collect the insurance for, uh, the fire insurance money and started setting random uh-huh. fires around the apartment. That was kind of tough. Which supposedly it did burn down eventually, right? No, it's like, it's a, it's a little like, I don't know if it's an Airbnb or hotel or it's something like they refurbished it and modernized it. Hopefully they got new elevators in there because those elevators were (laughs) scary and dangerous. Right. Like random, like. Well, the the other thing I got to ask about the Canterbury, there's a lot of Canterbury stories we're not going to have time for here, but they're in the book or in other people's books. Read Violence um, Girl. (laughs) What what did the other non-punks living at the Canterbury think of these feral new residents coming in and going in and out of each other's windows if nobody answered the door and 
Well, I think most <laughs> orgy of the, in this room. I, I think most of the people that live there had some reason why they couldn't live somewhere else. Like I know that there were certain apartments that were like you know like a bunch of maybe immigrants that were like all you know, and I mean adult like um like a bunch of men that were living in one. And they were maybe day laborers or something to go out of work. And then they just went there to sleep. There was some of that. There were people who were probably involved in illegal activities that were living there. Like there was, there were no like, you know, sweet little families that lived there that were like, but there were people with kids. Some of the the people were with kids, but they were like equally shady. (laughs) So I don't know that we were really like the ones that were the problem. We were pretty nice. <laughs> we were wild, but we were we were nice. We never like terrorized other people. There were um I know that that Margot uh Gogo had some issues with some, and and Sheila too had people that um that were drug dealers that kind of terrorized them. But Right. A little bit of that in the book yeah. too. Where is where is Margot today? Any idea? Margot lives in New York. Um, and she I don't remember she does some translation and I think she's like I'm not sure what she does, honestly. I know she does some translation. She's, you know, fluent in English and Spanish, and uh she has a really nice apartment. I know because uh we went to we went to the protest in in DC when uh, when uh, Trump was elected, and I crashed at her house. But we had the little pink hats. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, I wish I had one of those, but I was never able to get one. Oh, I'll make you anyway, one in they, case they... you want to go. <laughs> oh no, Shane Marie's gonna want one too. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, well, we are running out of time here, so I uh, want to thank you for being here. We'll, we'll get together again. Bye for now. 